Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we talk about trees. They're on the decline statewide for a number of reasons, but there are efforts to expand the tree canopy in places like Hartford. We learn about the benefits of urban trees. That's coming up. First, there are 24 charter schools statewide that must follow state laws to operate. Connecticut Public's investigative unit, the Accountability Project, looked into a New London charter school that has been on probation by the state. And now the school's accrediting agency is also investigating the Interdistrict School for Arts and Communication. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now with more on Zoom is Walter Smith Randolph, investigative editor and lead reporter for the Accountability Project at Connecticut Public. Walter, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. Good morning. So can you give us a, a bit of background on this school? Again, it's the Interdistrict School for Arts and Communication in New London. I understand it's also known as Isaac? Yeah, locally in New London, it's known as Isaac. It is a middle school serving grades six through eight and has about 270 students. Um, there's a lottery that you have to uh, be a part of and, and basically win a seat to, to get into the school. And I mentioned that the school's on probation and your story is that the probation has been extended. And so what happened? Yeah, so last year, the state uh, put the school on probation for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that uh, the school doubled the rate that uh, for special education students. So sending school districts, um, the school, Isaac, charges the sending school districts where the students are from um, to, you know, educate them. Uh, uh, so they doubled the rate and the state basically said, you need to tell us how you came up with this method. And they were unable to prove how they came up with the method. So that was one reason. Another reason was uh, computer disposals. Uh, the school sold some computers and, and the state said that they didn't dispose of them properly, um, that they didn't wipe the information from them uh, properly either. Um, so those are just two of the reasons why the school was put on probation. It was supposed to end this month and then the state visited the school uh, on May 18th and said that they were very receptive to the visit and to uh, coming up and it came up with a corrective action plan. That's what happens when you put on probation. But they said, hey, you know, what happened was so egregious that we need to continue watching you for another six months. Um, and so you need to and you need to come up with uh, the method of how you're hiking the special education rate. So we're going to keep you on probation and revisit this again in December or January. I mentioned there are about 24 charter schools in Connecticut. And so uh, what you just outlined is, is that uh, unusual for a charter school to be put on probation in our state, Walter? Yeah, it is unusual. It's not something that happens very often, but you know, if there if there's a problem that needs to happen, they will put the school on probation. I should also mention that they were also put on probation because uh, they lack proper governing board oversight of school finances. So basically, they, the school has a board of trustees, and the state found that the board of trustees wasn't really operating efficiently or giving enough guidance to the school. 
Mm, that's problematic when you think about overcharging uh, school districts, um, thinking about um, how they're operating. But the accrediting body is also looking into the school. Why is that? Yeah, so that's a different uh, investigation. So a lot of uh, what happened is because uh, former teachers and some who were current teachers as well emailed the state uh, saying, you know, you need to take a look at these things are happening with the special ed, with the computers, with the with the governing board. But there are also complaints of a toxic work environment um, uh, uh, fostered by the executive director, Dr. Nicholas Spera. Um, and so the, the, the accrediting agency uh, known as NIAS, they said that they have become aware of the complaints and that they have launched their own investigation to look into the climate and the culture of the school to see what's been going on. Um, you know, Dr. Nick Spera has been at the helm of the school for about two years. He came from the Marine, Marine Science Magnet High School in Groton, um, and he was there for about eight years, but he left while under investigation. Um, and through some of our investigative reporting, we found in his personnel file that he had been accused of fostering a toxic work environment before, um, that he had received a disciplinary letter saying uh, that he actually discriminated against uh, someone who was pregnant and that that could open up the school to different lawsuits. Um, and he also did a uh, survey in 2013 of marine science and um, they found that the faculty experienced a culture and climate characterized as, quote, emotionally abusive, manipulative, and frightening. And so in our story, the three, the two teachers and one former board director um, who work at Isaac said that basically carried over from marine science to Isaac and that they had to work in a toxic work environment. So that's why uh, NIAS is investigating. You're hearing Walter Smith Randolph here on Where We Live. He's Connecticut Public's investigative editor and lead reporter for the Accountability Project uh, as we learn about this new London charter school that's on probation by the state and the school's accrediting agency is also investigating the Interdistrict School for Arts and Communication, also known as Isaac in New London. You mentioned Dr. Uh, Spera, you mentioned he's executive director, so describe what that that role is um, when we think about this charter school, Walter. So an executive, so there is a principal, and so the principal reports to the executive director. You can think of the executive director as maybe like the president of the school. So the executive director really sets the policies and procedures, uh, you know, works with the board, uh, works on, you know, fundraising and making sure the grants are in, in order. It doesn't necessarily deal with the daily operations or the, the students uh, directly academically, but, you know, bigger picture. If, if it was a private school, it would be, you know, he'd be the president. Mm. And what has Dr. Spera told Connecticut Public about these allegations? Uh, so we asked for uh, interviews and we were, those interviews were uh, denied by the uh, chairman of the board, Richard Muckle. Um, they actually said that they were, uh, uh, the board was, uh, quote, wholly and fully satisfied with Dr. Spera's uh, performance. Uh, and then we also received a letter from the lawyer saying that they thought uh, that there should not be a recorded interview, that we should wait to publish our story until the end of the school year so we can see the reports. And that also that, you know, that they couldn't discuss some personnel issues and that, you know, some people were probably uh, talking to us because we were granting them anonymity, which we actually did not. Um, everyone we talked to that we quoted uh, at least um, went on record, but we did talk to quite a number of people. Uh, we didn't quote them, but we talked to them uh, on background and they refused to uh, go on record because they said that there's a fear of retaliation. Mm. 
You mentioned the board. One of the people you spoke with was the former board director, Ms. Melendez. What was her experience? And I understand uh, she told you it also impacted her son. Yeah, so she was, uh, she said she was elected as vice chair of governance on the board. Um, and she said as soon as she was in that position, she just noticed that things weren't going the way they're supposed to, that the executive director had a lot of involvement with the board of trustees. And, you know, from her understanding, he was supposed to be ex officio um, and that the board was supposed to come to a quorum and they were supposed to vote. But it seemed really like the executive director was pulling the strings of the board. And when she started asking questions, she said that's when her son, who was a student at the school, started having trouble. Um, she said that he was locked out of uh, of his different assignments at the school. Um, you know, this was all happening during uh, uh, coronavirus, you know, uh, when students were at home. And so he couldn't get into some of his larger um, points assignments, which really affected uh, his grades. So she pulled him out of the school and she also resigned from her position. And she has filed a complaint with the uh, the State Commission on Human Rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, you outlined you know, these allegations of a toxic work environment and speaking to staff and former teachers. But I'm wondering, you know, when we think about a school community, how have parents and even you know students, uh, you know, how are they responding uh, you know, to these issues with uh, Isaac? So, uh, again, these are middle school students, so I haven't really heard um, from 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 them. But I will say students at Marine Science have really come out of the woodwork to say, you know, this, we're not surprised by this. This is what's happening in marine science. We can't even believe that, you know, uh, Isaac hired the executive director. How, why is the state not doing anything? Um, there's a lot of chatter on social media. You know, parents, it's a mixed bag. Some parents are just, you know, shocked. Um, but there are other comments from parents who are saying, hey, look, we don't have many better options. Where do you want us to send our kids? You know, um, they're saying, uh, I'm seeing some comments online that are saying, uh, you know, well, he's not dealing directly with the students. Maybe this is just a, a staff issue, a faculty issue. Um, you know, the school, we like the school um, and we don't have any other options. So it is what it is. Mm. When we think about um, the state's role, again, this is a charter school. And so can you walk us through as, again, as the state has put the school on probation, you know, what are some potential outcomes here? Um, so really the the ideal outcome for the state and for the school is that the school comes up with a methodology for uh, hiking rates um, and the state says, okay, this makes a lot of sense. You've provided evidence. We're going to release you from probation and all is well. Um, so that's, you know, from a state perspective, what the ideal outcome is. Um, as far as investigating the toxic work environment, um, alleged toxic work environment with Dr. Sparrow, the state says, hey, look, we have investigated. We are aware of the complaints. We, we've looked at it. But really, there's not much we can do because he reports to the local board, the local board. It's really up to the local board to decide what to do. The local board is aware of what's happening um, because, again, the charter school has a board of trustees. And the charter is granted and renewed by the state. But when our listeners are hearing about this, Walter, I mean, this is something that should be on uh, everyone's radar. This is a school that also receives about, what, three million in state funding? Yeah, in 2020, they received three million dollars in federal. It's federal and state funding mm-hmm. um, that they received. And yes, the, you know, the, the the state does grant uh, their charter, and so their charter is up for renewal next year. And so is their accreditation with the accrediting agency. So I would not be surprised if if these become um, issues or topics that they talk about. And Walter, what what's been the response from the community after the reporting of this story? 
Um, you know, it's a it's a, it's a small community out of New London, um, and some folks are familiar with marine science, and so. Um, I've been seeing lots of not again, like how is this continuing? When is this when is this going to stop? Um, so that's been a lot of the reaction that I'm seeing uh, as far as online uh, chatter. And so meanwhile, the state and accrediting agency are investigating and when are they expected to report back? Uh, so the state is going to revisit probation in December in January or, or January um, and take a look at that again. And the accrediting agency says that their investigation will come to an end in July and then it'll become a matter of public record. So we'll be following up on that. That's Walter Smith Randolph, investigative editor and lead reporter for the Accountability Project at Connecticut Public. Walter, do you want to remind our listeners if they have some tips they want to send your team how to do so? Yes, please reach out to us and email us at tips at ctpublic.org. That's T-I-P-S at ctpublic.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Walter Reports. Thank you, Walter, for your time today. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up after the break, we're going to explore urban trees. Have you thought about how much a tree is worth? More after the break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Trees are vital in so many ways. They provide oxygen and shelter us from the sun, their home to wildlife. Trees also play an important part in the fight against climate change by storing carbon and reducing emissions. Scientists tracking trees in our state note their declining numbers. In Hartford, increasing the tree canopy is one of the goals of a climate action plan developed by the Hartford Climate Stewardship Initiative. Efforts are ongoing to boost the city's urban forest, which has declined, like many cities, due to disease, bug infestations, strong storms, and natural aging. To learn more, joining us now on Zoom is Heather Dione, who's the Hartford City Forester. Heather, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I mentioned you're the city forester, so can you explain your role to our listeners? Well, essentially, I take care and manage uh, 
560,000 trees, um, and they're not all within city limits of um, of Hartford. You know, we have parks that expand beyond in West Hartford and New Britain and Wethersfield and Windsor. So um, just making sure that they're, the trees are safe and making sure that the residents are safe as well. So it's a, it's a two-part um uh, approach, I guess, to to the job. Um, I'm also on call basically 365 days a year, 24-7, uh, because if there's any issues with a tree going down or we have an impending storm or we we just need to respond to, to strange emergencies like trees on fire or cars hitting trees, then um, I'm there. Did you say 560,000 trees? That's a lot of trees, Heather. It's a lot of trees, yes. <laughs> so uh, do you have a, a robust staff? I mean, how are you able to maintain, uh, you know, all of that, uh, th those trees? Um, well, we have, we don't have a super robust staff as of yet, but um, we're in the process. Right now I have uh, three tree trimmers, um, and then we also have a couple contractors um, that we work with. Um, so essentially... Um, any tree that is maintained um, in terms of pruning or that needs to be removed is vetted through me. Um, and the same basically goes for planting throughout the city. So, I'm curious, uh, when I said that you were the Hartford City Forester, I understand you're the first woman to hold this position. What attracted you to the work? I had a really passionate um, high school teacher who's now um, a professor at UConn, Dr. Tom Abbott, who really inspired me and made a couple connections. Um, I had a boss who um, is no longer with us, um, Chuck Conklin from the town of Coventry, who was the tree warden. And um, Tom Abbott kind of introduced me to him. I was doing a lot of uh, field work. Uh, for my studies and um, the rest is history. I basically declared that um, when I got older, I wanted a job like Chuck's, but in a larger scale. And so how long have you been the, the city forester, Heather? 10 years now. Wow. Uh, when we think about earlier, when you're mentioning of all the, the times that you and your team will respond when there, there's issue with a tree, what has it looked like for you the last uh, few years when we think about um, there was the drought a few summers ago, then we've got a lot of uh, severe storms. And when we think about Hartford and just the, the age of the trees, uh, you know, how many trees would you say you know, have been lost in recently and why it's so important to boost the tree canopy again? Oh, gosh. So, I mean, we've obviously dealt with a uh, few seasons of drought. Um, 2016 to 2018 was uh, pretty trying because I could definitely see rapid decline of the trees. There was um, a response to drought, like sudden limb drop, um, trees that were just kind of blowing over with that you wouldn't think we're having any issues, but there was hardly any root system left because it had essentially dried up. Um, and and just so so responding to that <laughs> um, made it quite difficult. And then, of course, dealing with invasive insects like um, emerald ash borer. And then shortly after that um, drought season, we had an infestation of two-line chestnut borer. So 
we've been very, very busy. Um, I've I had more money in the budget last year than um, what I had in the past. So I really hit some of our trouble spots where I constantly get calls where we have large trees, did thorough assessments on those and, um, you know, made the determination whether or not they're going to stay. Um, and if they're staying, we're pruning, you know, we're doing a lot of crown reductions, crown cleaning, and just um, trying to, to keep them standing um, as long as possible. At the top, I had mentioned all, you know, all the benefits that, that trees provide. But when we think about urban trees and some of the, the challenges with the canopy, but also why they're so important, Heather, can you walk us through that? Well, the city gets hot. I mean, if you drive, you know, 30 minutes out of the city um, to the suburbs or whatever, you know, there's more tree cover. The temperature is drastically less and um, it's just more comfortable. So dealing with really hot temperatures, we have a lot of impervious surface, a lot of concrete and uh, asphalt. And um, that attributes to, you know, tempers <laughs> and mental health issues. Um, you get um, higher asthma rates, uh, which, is, which is pretty scary. Um, and then just stormwater issues. Obviously, our storms have been more sudden, more intense. So um, the trees that we have in the city that are standing are incredibly incredibly valuable every little tree um is incredibly valuable and um just trying to maintain that and keep the public safe and then um, planting more it's it's a whole process and we think about the trees that are in hartford i mean what are the more common ones and when we think about efforts to uh, be aggressive with tree planting what does that mean in terms of the types of trees that you want to be planting in the city so, I mean, we have a lot of oaks um, and then we have, you know, a tremendous amount of like Norway maples, red maples, some sugar maples, um, um, London Plain, London Plain does wonderful in the city, uh, honey locust. And so when we're planting, I mean, there's a couple of native species that we find just cannot tolerate the heat and, and salt. Um, so we don't really um, plant any more sugar maples unless they're in a park. And even still, you're kind of um, taking a gamble with that. Our native flowering dogwood is another tree that, um, you know, doesn't like uh, hot temperatures and, and such. So um, we're, we mix it up. I mean, Japanese pagoda tree is a, is a insanely strong tree. Uh, the honey locust is incredible. Um, uh, diversity wise. And so um, <laughs> another thing that I have to take into account is if Hartford was to be hit with uh, Asian longhorn beetle. So I, I try to diversify as much as possible. The like the top tree of choice for that insect is the maple. So our maple species. So um, just trying to diversify. They don't like oaks, they don't like hickory, um, and they don't touch conifers. So blending those trees in more um, is a focus as well. And, you know, and of course, I know a lot of people love natives and they're like, you know, we, they, they wanted to see all natives and, and such, but it is, it's a totally different climate in the city. Um, 
and we we have to diversify so you're hearing heather dione here on where we live she's hartford city forester as we talk about the urban tree canopy you know one of the goals is to boost the number of trees in hartford part of the climate action plan developed by the hartford climate stewardship initiative we're going to be hearing about that uh, more about that coming up uh, again you can join us if you are planting trees in your neighborhoods or if you're thinking about the the role of urban trees our number 888-720-9677 or find us on facebook and twitter at where we live. I mentioned that Heather is a Hartford city forester. Another uh, city forester arborist joining us now on Zoom is William Bryan Logan. Uh, he's also a teacher, author of several books, including Sproutlands, Tending the Endless Gift of Trees. Bill, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. This has been great so far. I've enjoyed listening to Heather. Wonderful. And I, we were just talking about the importance of diversity uh, when uh, boosting the, the number of urban trees, uh, all of the, the factors working against uh, trees, including invasive insects. And so you do a lot of work in New York City. So tell us about your work and, and how you would respond to the importance of urban trees, Bill. Well, I mean, we've I've taken care of trees in New York City for more than 30 years now, which makes me pretty old. But um, I remember, I always remember one of the first uh, times we were ever up in trees and sat in a back uh, behind an apartment building in, somewhere in Manhattan. Um, somebody leaned out the window while we got up in the tree. We were there to prune them and yelled, if you hurt our trees, we'll call the police. <laughs> There's a lot of affection and, and really more than affection, almost attachment to trees in uh, New York City. Um, and I think it's partly because trees give people a connection to a world that we didn't make and a world that we don't really own that goes on by itself. And so people's connection to trees in the, in the cities, I think is, is important for all of the reasons that are now documented for what they do with pollution, for what they do with getting particulate matter out, for reducing temperatures, as Heather said, um, for all of those things, but also just for this kind of intangible benefit they give us when we're near them. Mm. So there's an intangible benefit. There are the health benefits, but also the mental health benefits, especially when we think about cities uh, where there may not be a lot of green space, where they're dealing with a lot of uh, hot temperatures in the summertime and people want a place for shelter. Bill, uh, talk us through those. Yeah, well, um, I think in part, you know, certainly you you experience it. They've done these. Uh, we've been part of urban heat island effect studies in New York. And it's interesting that when we, we've planted large numbers of trees in, in the Bronx and also in the lower Manhattan, and they haven't reported great declines in temperature there um, because they're kind of going by airplane and looking at everything overall. But everybody who lives in those neighborhoods notices it immediately in the summer when they have a canopy over their heads. All, you know, you walk from out of the trees to under the trees and you go, oh, thank goodness. So I think that it, you can feel an almost, I often feel an almost uh, a visceral uh, relaxation that occurs uh, when I'm suddenly under the shade of a tree. And so I think that it, it's extremely important for people in cities, again, because as Heather said, there's so much impervious surface that is often very reflective and very hot to have this refuge that's right there beside us, right on the streets often. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about increasing tree coverage, especially in a place like New York City, and maybe some lessons as we think about how communities in our state, Bill, uh, are also working towards this goal? 
New York City did, you know, under um, uh, Mayor Bloomberg did uh, the Million Trees Project, which was an effort to plant a huge number of trees. Uh, and in some respects, it certainly succeeded in doing that. Um, so that, that was a very successful in that measure. What was not so clear was how they would take care of them. Um, and that's the, the continual challenge that we face is to have enough resources to take care of the trees we have in the ground so that they can mature to be beautiful trees that will last a long time and give all the benefits uh, that we want them to give. So that's kind of the challenge in New York City. We're planting a lot of trees now. We also have to take care of them. We've also planted numbers of trees for this urban heat island effect study uh, that was done by uh, New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. So there's large scale entities who are doing uh, uh, planting. And also, you know, as I said, people are, at least in our experience in, in our company, uh, are just nuts about trees. And we have one client who is continually looking for someplace she can put another tree. And we're going, Diana, you don't have any room. You can't put another. She says, well, what about over here? So um, there's, a, I mean, we also meet people who don't want to get rid of trees in New York. So it's not uniformly that way, but uh, there's pretty good effort now to get trees in the ground. The main challenge is how to take care of them. You can join our conversation as we focus on urban trees, our number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Heather, I've mentioned a couple times now this plan in Hartford to increase the tree canopy. Uh, tell us about the plan and, you know, what are some of the barriers right now? Um, well, the plan is to plant 3,000 trees a year for the next 50 years. And to increase our canopy uh, coverage from 25% to 35%. Um, and essentially the challenge is funding because <laughs> obviously these trees cost money to purchase, to plant, and then to maintain. Um, and and just um, oversight, um, you know, I'm, I, I handle <laughs> all the trees, uh, mature and, and, and new, so, um, bandwidth for that is is also a challenge and so as part of this plan you know it's a public private partnership in a way where um you know the the city is uh maybe fundraising and, and able or maybe allocating more money from the budget to plant these trees in neighborhoods especially those that don't have a lot of trees but also um you know leaning on residents uh, to take it upon themselves to, to help i wonder if you can talk about that Sure. So 50% of our canopy is located on private property. So if anyone is ever um, wondering how they can help, um, you know, my first suggestion is, you know, do a little research or contact me um, or the, the Connecticut Urban Forest Council or your local tree warden and, and talk about tree species and, and start planting on your own property because um, that's pretty significant. Better yet, if you can involve children or grandchildren or, you know, the neighborhood, because obviously um, trees are kind of communal and um, and bring everybody together. Um, what was the, Can you repeat the question? I was just wondering more that, that residents can do. And we think about areas of the city that don't have a lot of trees. So if you have a if you prioritize where the tree planting needs to happen first, uh, what neighborhoods are we talking about? Um, I mean, uh, Clay Arsenal is a prime example of an area where there's very little tree canopy and very little opportunity to plant. It was, it's an older neighborhood. Um, 
you know, the structures are crammed in there. So there's very little, um, there's really no right away along the street to plant trees. Um, there's hardly any front yards. And then, you know, then you're, you know, looking to the backyard. So there's a lot of outreach that's required there. Um, fortunately, a lot of our NRZ groups are getting involved. We have a incredible tree advisory uh, commission that um, is is great with advocacy. We have a Facebook page called Capital Forest. So just getting the word out on how important trees are is is the number one um is the number one thing. Uh, we've been planting a lot at, in schoolyards. Um, one thing I noticed when I started in Hartford was that there was like no shade, um, no trees in, in the schools or, or on the property of the school. So um, we really focused on um, school plantings. We just did some planting um, last season um, to fill in some gaps in several areas and involve, you know, the superintendent um, and really everybody. We did the same thing with our firehouses um, and, and got the, the fire department involved. So there's a lot of advocacy, there's a lot of education and it's all about um, getting everybody involved. Again, you can join us if you have a question about tree planting uh, where you live. Uh, today's focus on urban trees as we learn more about this plan to increase the tree canopy in the city of Hartford uh, by 35, 35% uh, tree canopy in 50 years. How did you come up with that, that number, Heather? Well, we ended up getting some funding, some grant funding to uh, put together uh, the tree canopy action plan, which was done in 2019. Um, and our consultant did a, a ton of research um, and then used our GIS data, our census data, you know, just numbers um, and put together this incredible plan, prioritizing neighborhoods for planting, prioritizing parks for planting, uh, recommendations um, for that, that key number, that 3,000 trees a year, um, and then also staffing um, and what what our budget should be looking at, including marketing um, and, and more of that outreach and education. It's so comprehensive. I'll be honest, I've never seen such a good tree plan. Um, and I'm super proud to have been a part of it and, and grateful for those that contributed. Again, our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Paul's calling in. Paul, what's your comment or question? Oh, looks like Paul is not there, but I do have his uh, comment in front of me. Um, I wanted to read this to Bill, who was our other guest. Uh, Paul calling in uh, from the Stonington area. Uh, he says, I've seen the last four years unbelievable bagworm eradicated thousands of trees. I see it in my gardens and my clients. I work from Boston and New York. Never used to be here. And so he's uh, talking again about um, some of these insects that are so detrimental uh, to trees. So what can you tell us about that, Bill? That's very interesting. I, I have not heard of, I mean, I've seen bagworm infestations in limited areas, but I would be very interested to hear uh, where it's expanding. It's a very interesting uh, creature. Well, it's called bagworm because it manages to build using the foliage of the plant that it's attacking um, a little nest out of that foliage. So sometimes you don't even notice them until you see this little teardrop shaped thing that isn't exactly, it has the foliage, but 
it's not the right shape and then you know you have bagworms so it could be a serious issue um i'd be interested to hear more about that one because i haven't seen that as a broad issue as much though maybe it's something on the uh, approach there are so many pests and diseases that are coming so quickly now um one example is beech leaf disease a couple of years ago they said oh this is a problem on american beaches not on european ones and it's limited to coastal areas and then gradually it's more on more american beaches in more places more quickly than it's on american and european beaches and now it's possible that it's an extremely serious problem. And this is not the only one. We're seeing a lot of these happening now. So among the invasive problems that we're facing, uh, some of the worst ones are pests and diseases. Uh, Mary's calling in from Hartford. Mary, what did you want to share? Hi, this is Mary Pelletier. Heather, who I know, um, I work along the north branch of the Park River, and what we've found is that there's some considerable forests along the north branches and the south branch of the Park River. And this is true in many of our towns throughout Connecticut, that there's forests that are unprotected, and they're all along the rivers and the waterways. And we can protect these forests now and help mitigate urban heat island effects and also uh, improve um, just nature in our neighborhood, the amount of oxygen and air quality, because these waterways are largely overlooked. Um, but I'd also, there's another point I wanted to make, which is it is hard to establish uh, trees that are brought in from faraway nurseries throughout the city, but we can stop mowing in select areas in city parks. And often, uh, if we select those areas and we begin to train people who cultivate um, native species that emerge, um, these volunteer trees are proving, I've heard from other parts of the country, to be stronger trees because many of these trees are part of the integral forests of those, of those historic parks which were established before these nurseries were created. It's a way for cities to save money and improve their tree canopies within the parks that are old, old parks that were really um, established before the practice of uh, bringing um, uh, nursery trees in and paying for them. Um, and one other point about um, pests and bugs, and um, I'd like to just note that uh, there's concerns that um, these issues of diseases are turning into ways to harvest trees or reasons to quote-unquote manage forests. But you know, we have to remember, having just gone through the pandemic ourselves, that allowing um, our bodies, our forests, our, our our organic systems to develop immune responses may be part of the work, um, along with managing management and and care. So, uh, I think learning how how we can cultivate life and nature is part of the work, not just. Um, tree removal, um, uh, uh, extraction, and, and planting um, cultivars, which are often um, same seed stocks and not um, don't have the genetic variety 
Um, thank you, Mary, for your call. Uh, we're going to be running out of time uh, shortly, uh, but I wanted to thank you for calling in, making some uh, very interesting points. Uh, I wanted to thank William Bryant Logan for joining us. Again, an arborist, teacher, and author of Sproutlands, Tending the Endless Gift of Trees. Now, if you're interested in learning more about urban trees, and you can hear more from Bill, the Garden Club of Hartford is hosting an event June 15th, open to the public. More information at gchartford.org. We'll be sure to tweet out that link. Bill, thank you for your time today. It was really great to hear from you. Great. Thank you. I very much enjoyed it. Now, Heather Dione, the Hartford City Forester, will stay with us. After the break, we're going to talk more about diseases and insects impacting Connecticut trees. If you have a question, you can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. The emerald ash borer, the spongy moth, just some of the invasive insects plaguing trees in our state. Add in previous droughts and powerful storms in recent years, and you begin to understand why many trees have died. Joining us now with more on Zoom, Andrea Urbano, Central District Service Forester at the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Andrea, welcome to our show. Andrea, can you hear us? Yes. Can you hear me? Yep. You're live on the radio. Uh, welcome to our show. Yes. I had mentioned some of the invasive insects that are uh, causing uh, disease and problems with trees statewide. Uh, tell us about them. Certainly. Well, there are several invasive insects that are impacting Connecticut's forested landscape across the urban to rural gradient, some of which have been around for decades. Some are newer introduced species. Um, most are from Asia or Euro-Asia, the hemlock woolly adelgid, emerald dash borer, spongy moth, previously known as gypsy moth. Um, and there are others that are at threat of introduction, like jumping worms. Um, Bill mentioned earlier beech leaf disease and Asian longhorn beetle, which is not yet... Um, in Connecticut, but is in neighboring states. We had a caller earlier who does a lot of work and I believe lives on the eastern side of the state, uh, mentioning bagworm. And I'm wondering if you can talk uh, more about that and also, you know, you know, what we've seen on the eastern side of the state when it comes to tree decline. Certainly. Um, that was an interesting call as I am not familiar either with bagworm uh, being an issue plaguing Connecticut's forests at this time. It's certainly, um, you know, uh, defoliant and, and, and affects tree health and forest function. Um, but really the issue in the eastern part of Connecticut and the northeast at large is spongy moth. Um, the, and the timing, as you mentioned earlier, Lucy, of spongy moth outbreaks with these recent years of pretty severe and extensive drought. Uh, there is a soil-borne fungus that's lethal to the spongy moth and keeps its population in check naturally. But without soil moisture and in periods of drought, uh, that fungus is not 
able to live and thrive and function as a biological control effort. Um, so as a result, um, in 20, by 2020, um, the Agricultural Experiment Station documented that spongy moth caterpillars defoliated about 156,000 acres most of which are in eastern Connecticut. And in 2021, those acres are reported to be over 45,000, um, mostly now in Litchfield County in northwestern Connecticut. Mm. Um, and that is related to a drought that that region experienced in 2020. That sounds like a lot of trees that we're talking about <laughs> that have died. So, so what's the fix? So what can be done here? So... There is really no um, fix when you're thinking of it at this spatial scale. Mm -hmm. The goal um, of foresters and hopefully of landowners is to foster a resilient forested landscape. And by that, I mean a forest that is able to respond to a disturbance like that of the spongy moth and drought by resisting damage or stress and recovering quickly. Invasive insects and plants alike compromise resilience, but with proper stewardship, informed, active, and passive forms of management, um, we can foster resilience and improve our forest ability to recover. So the hope here is um, that this disturbance can help uh, promote advanced regeneration of native trees, foster um, uh, some diversity in our future forests, both structurally and um, in species composition. And I'll just mention quickly, Lucy, that this is not the first time Connecticut has endured spongy moth outbreaks. In 1981, um, it was recorded that um, one and a half million acres were defoliated by the spongy moth. And here we are in 2022 uh, with still mostly uh, an oak hickory forest um, that is doing okay despite more recent outbreaks. So our forests are inherently resilient. They will recover, especially with the help of us trained professionals and the private landowners that are really responsible for most of Connecticut's forested landscape. You mentioned uh, the, the trees that we've lost on eastern Connecticut and now mentioning also in the Litchfield area. Should people be planting more oaks? We've had Douglas Talamy on the show uh, talking about the, the vital role that oaks play. Yeah, oaks are um, integral to the health of uh, Connecticut's forested landscape. Um, white oak in particular is exceptionally valuable for wildlife, pollinators, um, and they're, they're one of, if not the longest lived tree species in Connecticut. So they have great potential for carbon storage and climate mitigation benefits. Um, so yes, oaks um, should not be avoided in our planting or, or management goals, efforts. Um, they require disturbance. Uh, to regenerate naturally in the forested landscape. Um, 
And and that is why, precisely why, Connecticut's current forested landscape is occupied by so much oak because of our land use history, which is grounded in, you know, clearing the landscape for agriculture and then again for charcoal production. Um, so actually implementing um, informed and strategic active management um, in the rural forested landscape can really help promote oaks on the landscape. Planting them as well in the right place is appropriate. Um, the key there is um, right tree, right place. You know, having species diversity within the Quercus or oak genus. Um, and then, of course, not focusing exclusively on oak. As Heather mentioned, it's important to have species diversity, but also structural diversity. So different age classes, different size classes, different arrangements of these trees. Uh, Heather Dione is still with us, Hartford City Forester. Oh, we yeah. just have about a minute left, Heather. I just wanted to mention you know, the role that Knox plays in helping in, uh, increase the urban tree canopy in Hartford. Can you tell us briefly? is uh, a nonprofit in the city of Hartford who um, puts, who trains apprentices uh, fr from the city um, to plant trees throughout. And it's been a great success. Uh, they're a wonderful partner. And honestly, if you're looking to um, contribute somehow in Hartford, um, I highly recommend making a donation to their organization. Again, that's Heather Dion, Hartford City Forester. Thank you for coming on the show to tell us about uh, this, uh, this tree plan, uh, part of the Climate Action Plan uh, here in the city of Hartford. And thank you for your time today on the show. Thank you. Also with us was Andrea Urbano, Central District Service Forester at the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Andrea, thanks to you for the information that you shared with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure being part of your morning. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.